Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Otessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. Today I'm joined in the writer's studio by Coco Mellers, author of one of the biggest selling novels of the year here at Shakespeare and Company, Cleopatra and Frankenstein. It's a story of a woman and a man, Cleo and Frank, who meet in New York on New Year's Eve 2006, who fall in love despite or perhaps because of their very many differences, and whose marriage within months causes not only an earthquake in their own lives, but also sends disruptive aftershocks out into the lives of their friends and families. Coco Mellis has an exquisitely keen eye for the dynamics of relationships, how they warp under pressure over time, and how our hopes and dreams for them come into violent contact with the very real and often very damaged people at their core. She's also a master of the ebb and flow of conversations, from the way we flirt to the way we bond and of course to the way we fight. All of which makes Cleopatra and Frankenstein one of the most devilishly readable debuts of the year. Coco, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much. That's such a lovely introduction. Thank you. Let's begin at the beginning when we first meet um, Cleo and Frank. Now, we are going to go a lot into their characters, I suspect, in this conversation. Mm -hmm. So we won't go into that right now. What I'd like you to do is for listeners who may not have, have read the book yet, could you tell us where each of them are in their lives at the moment they meet each other on 31st of December 2006? Yes. So Cleo and Frank, who are the titular characters in the novel, they are Cleopatra and Frankenstein. Those are their nicknames to each other. Um, They meet on New Year's Eve, as you said, and they're at very different places in their lives. Cleo is in her 20s. Um, She's been living in New York doing a master's for art and her visa is just about to run out. Mm -hmm. Um, She's from England originally and she wants to stay in America. Frank is in his mid 40s. He's very established. He is American. He's born and raised in the city. He owns his own company. He's a successful advertiser. He's very confident. He sort of has the esteem of someone who has real financial security. And they meet each other and they have this like instant and electrifying chemistry Mm -hmm. that's completely undeniable. And the other kind of has what each one wants. You Mm -hmm. know, Cleo's looking for security. And I think Frank, in a not unusual turn, is very attracted (laughs) to like the youth and beauty of this young person he's met who maybe her passion, her curiosity, her kind of youthful and Mm -hmm. perhaps slightly quixotic confidence is very exciting to him and injects his life with this sort of new vitality. Yeah. Let's get into the the writing of that first scene um, and how, I guess, in a sense, how you met 
clear and frank because one thing that really struck me when I was reading it was just how powerfully you capture that moment of when two people who you know maybe they're going to be, have a relationship maybe they're just going to sleep together maybe it's going to be the love of their life or mm-hmm. it's going to be something short but that moment of connection that two strangers can have seems so perfectly captured on the page would you just be able to talk a little bit about the process for you as a writer of channeling that connection was it writing from kind of personal experience remembered or or, or some other some other approach oh i'm so glad that it feels you know f- that it felt like a powerful opening because obviously the first chapter is so important in a novel and this wasn't the initial first chapter mm-hmm. so even oh, though the reader reads it first I wrote this scene probably when I'd been working on the book for three or four years. Wow. So even though Cleo and Frank are just meeting each other for the first time, <laughs> I knew each of them extremely well at that point, That's which it. I think is was really helpful, mm, actually, because there's sure. so much subtext in this scene. Um, when I was writing it, I the, the original first chapter is a wedding scene where we may, meet Cleo, Frank, and all of their friends and family. Okay. I ended up feeling it was too overwhelming for the mm. reader because it's just too many people to meet in one go and I wanted to feel grounded mm. in their relationship. So I went back and I tried to imagine, I'm always thinking how I can turn the dial up in terms of the drama of a scene. So I, I you know, New Year's Eve felt like a perfect setting, right. you yeah, know, yeah. just, it's a new beginning. It's a kind of, it's a raucous night already. There's a lot of energy. It's and, also um, a night which is really full of hope which is so often disappointing. Yes, and Frank even says that. Yeah, you know, yeah. he says this is I've never ever had a New Year's Eve that right. wasn't just okay. Mm. You know, it's <laughs> never it's never really exceeded his expectations. And when I was writing this meeting, I you know, I really wanted to have this feeling in the dialogue where your heart starts to beat faster mm-hmm. as you're like as you're listening to them. They have this very quick back and forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I listened to this song. I often listen to one song on repeat when I'm working huh. on a scene, and I listened to a song that had a very quick drum beat that was okay. a pitter patter, patter. So it would go, and I would try to write the dialogue in time with that. So there's this feeling as they're like sparring back and forth. Mm. Like hopefully you have the sensation in your own body as you're reading it. It's sort of like your your pulse is going faster. Like your mm. body is sort of electrified by what's happening. And so by the end of that chapter, we should feel like we've just fallen in love. Uh-huh. You know, it's a big leaping off point for the rest of the book. It's definitely one of those moments that I think, uh, and there's another one which we'll come on to talk about uh, later, I think, where if you've lived anything similar to that and like, you know, whether it might have been different in intensity, it might have been different in, um, you know, the where and when it happened. But you kind of you can feel your way into the scene because it feels so it feels so authentic in a way. Um, also, in that first scene, it's the first time they get these nicknames for each other. So mm-hmm. you know, Cleo becomes Cleopatra and Franken- uh, Frank becomes Frankenstein. Should we as readers perhaps have taken that as a warning that they're, uh, let's say that in a way they were kind of projecting something on to the other one, something of perhaps a kind of a mythological or something fictional uh, onto the other one, which perhaps they would never quite be able to match up to. Yeah, I think that's a good insight into that moment. You know, I was thinking, uh, my mum is the one who actually titled the book for me. Hmm. I had loads of different titles and none of them felt quite right. And she said, from reading that first chapter, how about Cleopatra and Frankenstein? And I was like, yes, it's perfect because it's this odd couple, Hmm. this kind of odd sounding words together. And it's also, yes, it's about mythologies and stories and masks, Mm -hmm. you know, 
the version of ourselves we show someone before we let them see the real person behind. I think a lot when I was when I was working on this book, I thought a lot about that Baldwin quote: "Love takes off the mask we fear we cannot live without, and know、right. we cannot live within." Okay, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. think this story is really about that. Like they both have these masks that they fear they cannot live without,、mm-hmm. which is for Frank this like kind of smooth, cool operator who has everything under control, yeah, who yeah, yeah. financially supports everyone in his life. For Cleo, this like young free artist who's got the whole world ahead of her.、Mm-hmm. And actually, and they, but they cannot keep living within those smooth facades because they're false. You、mm-hmm. know, both of them are hiding from their past, which are pretty deeply traumatized. Both of them have very real fear of intimacy, fear of love. Yeah. And the the whole novel is about those masks cracking, those yeah, identities yeah, yeah. kind of tumbling down. There's also something I think in、um, in that first scene, which is again something I imagine a lot of listeners will identify with at the beginning. Of、uh, of relationships, where you have that very genuine moment of connection, and then I guess the it's not exactly doubts creep in, but there's this moment of kind of the image you suddenly want to project, and I guess the mask you want to put on for the new person, how you、mm. want them to see you, and how you want them to think of you in a way, and and that seems to be like the case immediately for for Cleo and Frank that they are、mm. sort of I suppose the image that came to mind as I was thinking about it was sort of they are staking out. The grounds of their of their relationship, yeah.、Um, and bearing in mind, as you said, that you know they are in two very、uh, different positions in their life and with very different expectations about what will come in the next few years, it becomes very clear to the reader, I guess, that this is a kind of terrain being staked out, which will at some point be、uh, fiercely fought over. Yes, very much so. And I think you know when you first meet someone, I think part of the pleasure is. I don't want to call it a full self exactly, but it's like you are your sort of shiniest self、mm. at yeah, the beginning, yeah, yeah. and there's something really lovely about occupying that self、yeah. for a while.、Um, it's just sort of like a fre- it's a freshness. You're、mm-hmm. like, and you get to kind of fall in love with yourself. You know,、yeah. the version of you reflected in the eyes、mm-hmm. of this other person. And I think you know, Cleo and Frank take that to an extreme.、Uh-huh. You know, they're people who feel. The need to be very shiny、uh-huh. to each other and to others, and I think because they both fear that just beneath the surface they're deeply damaged and unlovable,、yeah. and that's kind of what they have in common.、Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, even though they're very different, I they kind of are overcoming a lot of the same problems、mm-hmm. throughout the novel, and I do think the unconscious, like. I, you know, I learned in my own life, like when I'm really <laughs> deeply and instantly attracted to someone, I probably need to run the other way because that's、right. really not the healthiest person for me to be around. And I、sure. think Cleo and Frank learned that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You put me in mind of something, and if you'll excuse the sort of、uh, the vulgarity of it, but、um, a story I read years ago of this woman who was hospitalized,、uh, and they、uh, with some sort of you know with gut pain, and it turned out she'd been with this guy for six months and had never farted in front of him. <laughs> And because they spent、yes. so much time together, it had been, you know, it had actually left her to the point of being hospitalized. And that always seemed to be like a great sort of metaphor for like this,、uh, these early moments of relationship.、Yes. If you try and put up too much of a front, then <laughs>、yes. you know you end up exploding with gas,、yes. uh... and it will truly backfire. You know? Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> There you go. <laughs> That's what this was groping for, and we and we got there. Well done. <laughs>、um, you described their their lives.、Um, so Frank, as you say, in his mid forties, Coco in her early mid twenties,、um, very different status, I guess.、Mm-hmm. You know, in in, in how the world would see them,、um, and yet they're 
the power dynamic isn't perhaps as one side as one sided as certainly Cleo sometimes seems to seem to think it is and sometimes seems to to tell Frank it is and indeed indeed vice versa. When when you were getting to know these characters and getting to know their relationships, did you feel as a writer that the the power of the relationship laid more with one of them than the other or did it feel more evenly balanced? Actually, I didn't because I I think for me, like that would have been a moral judgment in a Mm. way of the characters. And that's not a helpful way for me to sort of to get into character. You know, in some ways, I think maybe a more straightforward way to have written this book would have been just from Cleo's perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, like the young female character who obviously seems on the surface the most aligned with Mm. me. But I was very interested um, in also writing Frank's perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I write from, an, you know, I write from seven different perspectives mm-hmm. over the course of this book from their other friends and family and between men and women in mm-hmm. many different ages. And so I think there's like, there's a kind of almost easy way of writing that relationship where it's like, it's an older man being predatory towards a younger woman. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a young woman who's you know, this currency of youth and attractiveness mm-hmm. that is very briefly granted to women yeah. and is not really power but feels like power in mm-hmm. the moment but is very illusory and Cleo does discover that that being desired is, is not the same as having actual real world power the way that Frank does yeah you know she says in the second half of the novel you have the citizenship you have the mm-hmm. money you have the career you have the apartment and those are very real things yeah you know? yeah, yeah and what does Cleo have I, potential mm-hmm. you, you know the the ability to attract yeah that's a slightly passive form of power and it's also one that won't last forever but i wanted frank it wouldn't be interesting for me to write like a bad guy and a sure. good girl you know like that's that's not true mm-hmm. and actually they're both complicated and they both benefited from the relationship and they were both hurt by the yeah, relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. and i think for me that's just a much more that's a more realistic way of telling mm-hmm. stories and more like compassionate way of telling story i think if you're writing characters that you don't like and you want to punish them it's never going to be a great reading experience yeah 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 but that, that's a really interesting thought actually is that idea of sort of how um i guess how society might perceive the power of a relationship compared to how the people in the relationship feel it because there are several moments i think i can't remember the exact turn of phrase but where frank feels a sort of an affront to i think an affront to his manhood or something mm. like that like he he really feels that certain of the ways Cleo is acting in some way sort of threatening him in his status yeah and yet as you say like from the external perspective he is the one with the money he is the one with the property he is the one with the citizenship all of the things and he he has there you know he has the I guess the capacity to to attribute these or not to yeah uh, to Cleo so there's you know there's there's this very kind of objective sense of power and yet Frank doesn't feel that no. And I think that's a really just a really, really interesting insight into the yeah, the difference between the way people are perceived by society and how how they feel themselves. Yeah. I mean Frank says at one point he like um Cleo says, Oh, he's just being a man mm-hmm. to someone. He said, Why is man always a synonym for arsehole? You right. know, he's like he's pretty belugered throughout a lot of the novel and and I think like, you know, this isn't the book is not meant to be this sort of like white male redemption tour. Sure. You know, that's not what the book's about. But That's what I was the, hoping for. Yeah, exactly. But but the book is I think like it's about flawed people mm. making choices that are not always the healthiest. Right. Yeah, but yeah, it is yeah. not about bad people mm. or immoral people. That's yeah, not yeah. what the book is about. And I don't and I and Frank 
for for all it's easy to you know some people really hate frank and i think some people have more compassion mm. towards him that's up to the reader but the truth is like frank is a child of an alcoholic mm. frank is someone who has alcoholism himself and doesn't know it yeah, yeah, yeah is struggling with his own addiction and i would say throughout the novel is actually really trying his best to uh-huh. be a provider to there's even that scene it's all set up in the first chapter actually where he offers to buy cleo a slice of pizza and she says, you know, are you not just really trying to buy me, mm-hmm. you know? And he said, I'm not trying to buy you, but I, I don't have that many tools to show I like you. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. offering to buy you a slice of pizza is one of the ways that men are allowed to show yeah, interest. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and like it was kind of, and, he, and then and then she accepts it. And he's like, see, mm-hmm. you'll take the money, but you're also throwing it in my face. So it's like, it's always sticky, that dynamic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never, I to be honest, I don't really... I don't, as the writer, ever want to land on one side. You know, uh-huh. I let the characters, it's like, it, it's a badminton shuffle. Mm-hmm. It goes back and forth between them. The reader can decide. But for me, like, I don't side with anyone in the book. I let yeah. them just yeah, do yeah, their yeah. own thing and see what happens. I'm interested in that question of the um, the seven perspectives, actually. I was going to come on to it later, but, but you mentioned it. Because um, you say you write from perspectives of men, of women, of people of different ages, of people of different races. Mm-hmm. And this strikes me as like quite a... Um, quite an unfashionable way in, in a sense to approach writing at the moment like it's something which I think the writer a lot of writers v- very much seek to defend as like sort of this this capacity for for empathy as Zadie Smith wrote in that brilliant essay yeah. um, uh, fascinated to presume in the NYRB a few years ago that there's sort of this um, you know it is part of the the a tool, the writer's tool for empathy I guess of being able to write from all of these perspectives but did you have a lot of uh, or any anxiety about projecting yourself into people whose uh, experiences in at different points in society you might not share? Yeah, I mean, it was something I took really seriously when I was doing it. You know, I, I also feel that the fiction writer's job is to write not only from one's mm-hmm. own perspective. You know, I'm, I'm not a memoirist, so mm-hmm. I'm always going to be writing to some degree from an identity or a perspective that's not exactly my own. Yeah. But of course, if you're writing from the perspective of someone who's a different race or a different gender or, you know, from a very different background, it's something I think to be handled with love mm-hmm. and respect. So anyone that I wrote about in this novel, you know, I had numerous people in my own life who were of those identities. Uh-huh. And I, it didn't make sense to me to write a book that was a sort of collection of perspectives that was entirely white and sure. straight. Yeah, I just yeah. didn't think that was going to... It just wasn't true of mm-hmm. New York, of this time, of this particular community of people. But I thought since I was going to have to be imagining things that I definitely hadn't lived. I had numerous people from any identity read it. Mm -hmm. First of all, that was in the very, uh, very early drafting process. And then I also had a sensitivity reader, which my publisher provided, read the book, to read it specifically from that perspective. Because, you know, you're always going to have blind spots as a writer. And there are things that won't be obvious to you that could really alienate or Mm -hmm. potentially hurt a reader, which I would never, ever want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't don't think I did it perfectly, but I, I do... I hope that it will continue to be something that's allowed in yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. It's so I, important. I know there's often people kind of get quite up in arms about this idea of a sensitivity reader, but I, I think that must be fascinating to have your to have your manuscript read and commented on by somebody. I actually like, loved yeah, it yeah, yeah. because their reader was they were phenomenal. They were a great reader, and they and it was. 
there were actually very few comments, but the few comments they did make, I thought they were small changes mm-hmm. that had big impacts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, like, great. You mm-hmm. know, it didn't sanitize the book at all, but it just, it called attention. You know, the truth is I am white. The publishing industry is very white. Mm. Like, it calls attention to things that none of, no one else working on the novel would, would have noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or would have had sense, truly the word sensitivities too. So I was really grateful for it. But, and I also, you know, I, I love writing fiction and I really enjoyed that process. Mm-hmm. And I and I hope that as a result, like the book is open to a larger number of readers and yeah, that more yeah, people yeah. can find themselves in this story than if I had only written from the perspective that was the most like mine. You talked about the, um, the, the, the you know, the group setting not, would not, if it would have just been like white women, it wouldn't necessarily have been typical of, of New York at the time. No. Like, Let's talk about New York in, in 2007, 2008, which is when this takes place. Like, I guess, you know, I've only I've only visited New York once in my life. It was actually probably around that sort of time. But the the, the impression I got of this city was of something like incredibly vibrant, but also so draining mm. and in many ways quite toxic <laughs> uh, for the for the people, particularly, I guess, the young people who are living there and trying to make their way in that city. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a joke where people say, you know, New York is hard on the body and LA is hard on the soul. But I would actually say that New York is just hard on both. You know, it really is. Um, I moved to New York as a 15-year-old in 2004. Uh, okay. So those early 2000 years in New York are kind of cast in amber for me. You know, I yeah, remember yeah, them yeah. really well. They have this sort of halcyon glow. Um, it was the period that I fell in love with the city and I was a teenager. So yeah. my emotions were big. You know, mm-hmm. I these, it was a big city. It felt like a kind of mythological place. And then my feelings as a teenager were operatic and I fell in love with it and then I hated it. And I, you know, it was, <laughs> it was just, it was this sort of big love affair. So I wanted to set, there were a couple of reasons I wanted to set the book. First, I wrote it, I set it in New York because that was mm-hmm. the city I knew best. My yeah. new novel is set all over the world. Uh-huh. Um, but I really wanted to write like a kind of love letter to New mm. York, the city that I had lived in for 15 years and really, you know, grown up in. And then I said it in the early 2000s. One was practical, which mm. was that I really, I wasn't really interested in having up-to-date technology in the book. I felt it took me so many years to write this novel that yeah. it would have just dated it too yeah, quickly. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. TikTok did not exist when I started this book. So, um, And then the other reason I just thought the early 2000s, because it was a time in my own life that I remember with mm. real intensity. And it was a very, you know, it was pre the crash it was a time where it felt like there were artists in Manhattan who had mm. money and freedom. There were sort of really famous nightlife parties happening at that time. It was just a really, it was a really sort of, I'm not a big fan of nostalgia, but it is fun when you're with other New Yorkers who were, were like kind of partying during uh-huh. those years because everyone's like, do you remember Beatrice? Do you remember Rough Club? Do you remember Shapes? <laughs> and we were all <laughs> that like indie sleaze period. And it is kind of nice to look back on it fondly, even though the truly terrible style from that yeah. era, I look back on some of the things I wore and it was just harrowing actually mm-hmm. but <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll come on to the sort of uh the, i guess the sort of the personal things the personal histories particularly of cleo and frank that bring tensions into their relationship but just sticking with new york how much do you think it is the sort of the dynamic of the city um that sort of how much does that contribute to the tension in not in, in their relationship but also but in the in the lives of their friends i think of uh of zoe who's sort of frank's mm. half-sister uh, and I think uh, we won't go into too much detail, but the sort of the arc of uh, Quentin, um, yeah. Cleo's best friend. Well, it seems that like something sort of fundamental about the way uh, their lives go is sort of 
is warped in some way by yeah. the by the what New York does to them. I mean, New York is an extreme city. Mm. You know, it's extremely condensed. It's extremely expensive. You know, everything about it is just, it's its the most city-ish of all the cities that can yeah, ever yeah, yeah. city, you know? <laughs> and for me, who I feel I'm quite like a maximalist writer, you know, mm. I like things that feel high drama and high mm. impact, hyper reality. New York is kind of an ideal place to set fiction because the pressure, it's a pressure cooker city. Mm. You know, you can't escape each other. You know, there's this outside forces that are keeping you together. Yes. You can't, the city's small. You're going to run into each other. Everyone seems to know each other mm. when you're in a kind of certain kind of social community. And that makes, I think, for dynamic fiction. And it also, I think, you know, I, there's this, I'm sober. And one of the things people say is if you want to speed up your bottom, move to New York, mm. you know, because you're just here if you are. I, I you're going to have to explain all of that expression. <laughs> okay, so your bottom is what you hit before you get sober. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, and if you want to hit your bottom faster, <laughs> move to New York, because if you have an addiction, New York is going to right. ramp it up. Okay. So, okay. Like, New York is a great place if you are an addict uh-huh. to find like minded people to get in a lot of trouble with. Yes. And it's also a a great place I think to stop doing that mm. you know to reach a breaking point it's just a city where I think it's like it accelerates things it speeds it up and it amplifies them which is something I love but I you know it's I no longer live there in some ways for a reason you know it was a great city to yeah, spend my 20s yeah, yeah, yeah. it's interesting because there are and again without going into too much of the plot details but there are moments where people are sort of they they get out of the city in an attempt to sort of I guess, escape the, yeah. <laughs> the, particularly this pressure cooker environment that, yeah. you, that you describe. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, Cleo and Frank's backgrounds then, mm. because um, there's a moment actually, I think, again, quite early on where, um, if I remember rightly, it's is it Cleo that quotes a bit of Philip Larkin mm. to, um, to, to Frank? And funnily enough, when I was going back through my notes, I realised that I'd also quoted a bit of Philip Larkin to myself in my notes, but from a different poem, the poem, This Be the Verse, you know, they fuck you up your mum and dad. (laughs) Because this seems to be quite a refrain in the novel. It's a sort of for for Cleo and Frank, but for pretty much everyone Mm -hmm. else around them uh, who we get to know a little bit of their their background. Uh, I say pretty much because there are some there are some decent parents in it. But um, yeah, that there is this kind of broadly speaking the uh the characters are where they are because of of damage that was inflicted yeah yeah it's i it's one of those things the unconscious is incredible what you're <laughs> writing you don't always know what you're writing about until at least for me until i reach the end <laughs> yes exactly so i you know why did these characters all know each other what draws them to each other mm. And I felt, you know, this is a group of people who are pretty high flying, you know, Mm. they party hard, they work hard, um, they're pretty obsessed with appearance, they're often very self-involved, and they're Mm. self-destructive, most of the characters in this book. And that's what creates the conflict and drama in the story, is that they, you know, given the choice between a sort of healthy action and a self-destructive action, for the majority of the novel, people are going to choose the latter. Yeah. And so um, I realized, you know, it became clearer and clearer as I was writing, like, why do certain characters do that? And a lot of them were escaping, you know, this feeling of just not being loved in their childhood. Mm -hmm. And so they're they're just searching, searching, searching for love. All of these characters, they're all desperate to Mm. connect. They're almost all of them deeply lonely. Yeah. Um, And what's so, what I, you know, you watch them 
kind of search for love in ways that are that give them the exact opposite mm-hmm. that leave them feeling more bereft and alone than ever before and then part of what i think is so hopeful about this novel is then you see them do something different mm-hmm. and actually begin to connect as their authentic selves to each other and it's i think really I was really moved, you know, when I got to that point at the end. Because I was like, oh, finally, you know? Like, that Frank says at the end of the novel, you know, people like us, we feel that we have to tap dance for love. Mm. And I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got too tired to keep tap dancing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually think myself, when I was writing this book, this book was a real, like, everything in the kitchen sink kind of debut, yeah, 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 which I think yeah. can be quite common. Like, oh, But I felt that completely. I was tap dancing as a writer. Like, oh, I can do first person. I can do third person. I can do yeah, close yeah. that. I can do, look at this. Like, love me, love me, love me <laughs> to the reader. <laughs> and um, and I, I feel that I've stopped tap dancing in my uh-huh. own life. Like, I gave myself what I also wanted my characters mm. to have, which was just to, like, slow down a little. And yeah, what does yeah, it look yeah. like to not have to dazzle and shine all the time? But to be seen and and loved for just the simple, you know, the the, the you that isn't a performance. Yeah. Always. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been I've been thinking, and I haven't come to any sort of um, conclusion or any kind of pop analysis about it. But like one thing I think that's fascinating about the the situation with Cleo and Frank is the presence or lack of presence of mothers in yeah, their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, concerning Cleo's mother, uh, I'm just trying to think: is it too much of a spoiler to talk mm. about this. I guess just go for it the book's been yeah. out for a while <laughs> okay so 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 Cleo's mother um committed suicide yes uh so there's this kind of this very tangible absence of a mother in her life whereas Frank's mother was very present to an extent yeah. in his in his childhood but was it with but withheld her, mm. So she was physically, tangibly present, but kind of withheld her her love, and in, yeah. indeed was quite often quite cruel to Frank. And as I said, I haven't quite come to any sort of conclusion about uh, the way these two sort of different relationships of the mother pr- perhaps drew the uh, the characters together. But I was wondering if that was something that that you had reflected upon these kind of the the different way these kind of quote unquote absent mothers impacted Cleo and Frank yeah I definitely think there was I always wanted this feeling of this kind of like these orphaned people even if they weren't literally orphaned because it 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 heightened the intensity Mm. of when they connect with each other there's that feeling of two kind of adrift Mm -hmm. shipwrecked people grasping onto each other to save each other's lives and um I think with someone like Cleo, like that, you know, it's such an incredibly deep wound mm. to carry with you. And it's something that she doesn't immediately reveal. And yeah, I think yeah, yeah. when someone has taken their own life, even though her mother was mentally ill and, you know, it very clearly, I think you can see wasn't about Cleo, mm-hmm. the the feeling of somehow personal culpability or had I been better, mm-hmm. had I done something different, perhaps this wouldn't have happened, can be torturous yeah. for the child. And um, and for Frank, although his mother is still alive, as you said, because she had a drinking problem and was very withholding and often mm. very critical, it's that same feeling of maybe if I was better, she would stop drinking. Maybe mm. if I was good, she would love me. So they both have that. And and I think there's something... I mean, so much of where we, I think, work out our childhood pain is mm. in romantic relationships. Right. You know, yeah, that's... Yeah. I'm, you know, 
it's very buzzy now, but I'm a big believer in attachment style. And <laughs> your attachment style is basically set by the time you're two years old, you know? So, um, and your attachment style is all about who you're attracted to in your romantic right. relationship. Yeah, so yeah. for me, it makes a lot of sense that someone like Cleo and someone like Frank would move towards each other, these mm-hmm. two wounded people, desperate, desperate to be loved and healed. And those are the kind of people who want accelerated and intense intimacy off mm. the bat. Yeah. So they get married within six months of meeting each other. How many people are, are willing to do that mm-hmm. if they come from secure and loving families? You know, how many people want to move that fast with right. anyone? For a lot of people who come from stable love, that's a bit of a warning sign. But if you don't and you are so hungry, famished mm. to feel love, that kind of speed is just absolutely you know mother's milk to them you know they're like they just want to inhale each other and you can feel that from the first time they meet Mm. each other for me that's that's the first half of the novel is is pacey as a result because you know they're moving quickly and as and the relationship i think peaks and then starts to fall apart very fast yeah 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 well let's talk about that that falling apart again without going into too much detail for, for people who haven't yet read the book but there is a moment where I guess it's a kind of quite a climactic argument mm. uh, between between Cleo and Frank. And again, rather than going into details, I'd like to talk a little bit about the writing mm. of it, because I can't think of another example in a book that really captures the kind of the I guess the intractability of an argument between a couple that sort of, you know, you can have, I think uh, you can have very healthy arguments in relationships that don't go down this particular path this is not one of those healthy arguments <laughs> this is not one of those. but i think we all probably to an extent reckon maybe not quite to the intensity of of the argument in this book but we all recognize that moment when almost uh nothing either of the other one can mm. say will do any good and everything they say will do some sort of damage and i'm just again i suppose from a sort of a, a craft perspective really fascinated to hear you reflect on the experience of of writing that uh that particular scene and sort of and, and, and capturing that dynamic was it something that came sort of quite naturally did it come in kind of an explosion of of inspiration or was it something that really had to be sort of i guess uh precision engineered on the page yeah and so it's funny readers often bring up this fight scene they they are it's they're kind of frankly are sort of like funhouse mirrors you know they are mirrors mm. to the reader in many ways but they're just often distorted and extreme mirrors yeah, you know yeah, yeah. i think everyone can identify with having a fight in which you say something truly cruel to another yeah, you know in which yeah, you're yeah. really trying to hurt and, yeah, wound, yeah. and you can't take it back and you wish that you could Frank and Cleo take that to a, a real extreme, I yeah, would say, yeah. where they just say everything they on, can think of. Not even that, there's that moment which I think is captured really well of kind of, you know you're about to say it and you don't want to, and yet you can't stop yourself. They anyway. can't, they can't. You know, they're just at the top of the roller coaster and then they just yeah. go down. And, um, you know, technically when I was writing that scene, I wrote almost, I, I really love writing dialogue and I find that once I'm in dialogue, mm-hmm. it's, it has its own engine and it just right. goes. And that's, yeah, yeah. as someone who writes quite slowly, it's very pleasurable mm. to have momentum behind yeah, me yeah, for yeah. certain scenes. So I wrote that scene almost almost like a script, just uh-huh. back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between the two of them because, you know, arguments are quick and you're defending yourself and, yeah. and I wanted to capture that. So I wrote it fairly quickly, that part. And then I went back and I was trying to add in moment beats where mm-hmm. you know we're back in the surroundings where perhaps there are those moments of pause where they're reflecting on whether or not they actually want to say that mm-hmm. where you're, you're getting tiny moments of interiority 
Um, and you know, the setting for that fight is this cabin upstate in the yeah. woods. And I did, I wanted to take them um, out. Yeah, it's like a horror film. <laughs> it is sort of psychological Boy, horror. You put it like that. A cabin in the woods. But I wanted to put them in a place. One of the jokes is that neither of them can drive. Mm-hmm. You know, they're both right. these, they're these like city people, you yes. know, and neither of them can cook. So they're only eating cereal for dinner. And they had been in this, in this cabin right before they decided to get married. Mm-hmm. So there's this memory and it's described as sort of like, you know, running almost like a river beneath yeah. the surface of every day mm-hmm. is the memory of six months or nine months earlier when they were there in the summer and they were falling in love. Mm-hmm. And here, such a short period of time later, here they are ultimately sort of trying to dis- destroy the relationship and each other. And um, it's, fun, you know, in my... I, I am someone who's very conflict averse in, in terms of my own life. So I have a very hard time uh, sometimes with characters. I avoid the conflict and I have them just do the nice mm-hmm. thing and it makes for very boring scenes. And so I really, when I was writing this scene, I had actually just met the person I married, my husband, mm-hmm. and I was like really falling in love. And I was <laughs> and it, and really healthy love for the first time in my life. And I was having this really beautiful kind of honeyed experience of, of meeting this wonderful, secure, kind, steady man. Yeah. And I would go to the library every day and then I would write this vicious fight scene <laughs> that was like two raccoons that had been shaken up in a garbage bag and then thrown at each other. And so it was, it was painful. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it was so, and so it really, I was really right having to, I was pulling up memories from my past, you know, fights that I've had, yeah. but I was not in that place in my own life. So it was, I used to feel, you know, I would get out of the library in the evening and I would feel so drained mm. by doing it. It was painful to watch. I love my characters and I hate seeing them hurt themselves and each other. Yeah, yeah. But it was true. You know, that's the thing sometimes like you can just feel with the character when like that is how they would have dealt with this. Yeah, you know, yeah, they did yeah. not have, you know, these, the tools to... Yeah to deal with conflict better than this, to find a way out of a relationship in a way that wasn't burning it to the ground first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I have a, a policy in, in when I'm interviewing a writer to, you know, I'm interested in the book. I talk about the book. I don't ask questions about the personal life because it's not part of the conversation. But the question I have going around in my head now is, when did you show your husband these scenes? <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't want you to answer, but that is just sort of speculation. I'm kind of like... <laughs> I know he did. He read everything really early on. He's very, I think it's like because he's such an incredibly secure individual. It never freaked him out. He always yeah. loves it. <laughs> um, I guess one of the um, the questions that's kind of at the heart of the book is the question, I suppose it's a double barrel question of can a person change and should they change for somebody else? Mm. Um, and again, you know, a lot of this interview is going to be sort of skating around details of the book without um without uh you know going into going into into without spoiling too much but it seems to me that this is the question that particularly at the relationship at the book's heart but also with a lot of the uh a lot of the characters around them is that question of yeah can they change and if so should they do it for the person uh you know at somebody else's request i guess i'm glad you think that's the question at the heart of the book because i agree i think it is too and um you know it's I, I do sometimes talk about personal details from my life because it's very relevant to how I was writing mm-hmm. it. But um, I got sober while writing the novel. Okay. So I changed in mm. a very deep way. Yeah. You know, it was a profound life change. And um, I think when I started writing the book, one, I didn't think that Frank had a drinking problem. So <laughs> <laughs> joke's on me. because. <laughs> I, <laughs> but I think I probably would have thought no, mm. you know, when I started writing the book. But I changed. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. as a result, I think my characters do change mm-hmm. in really kind of seismic, fundamental ways. Yeah. And But I don't think they change for each other. Uh-huh. You know, I think ultimately 
the change can't happen on someone else's timeline it can't happen at someone else's bequest you know mm. no matter ha- how um kindly conceived mm. that desire for another person to change is yeah, yeah, it, yeah it has to come from within them and ultimately both Cleo and frank and also the ancillary characters who who also have their own arcs where they mm-hmm. change as well something has to kind of give in mm-hmm. them that they you know ultimately the the des- the fear of change has mm-hmm. to be outweighed by the desire to get out of pain. Yeah. You know, at a certain point, things become too painful. Uh-huh. And you think, actually, as scary as it is to do things differently, as much as I don't know how even, mm-hmm. I-, I must try in yeah. order to live, in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And this book is really about people finding ways to carry on living. Uh-huh. You know, what does it mean to live in the wake of, you know, pretty, I would say, like, devastating destruction to each other in their personal yeah. lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the one, I guess, potential avenue for coming for continuing living comes from a a very minor character in the book. Um, I don't know if sure I'm going to pronounce his name rightly. Jiro, Jiro, yeah, Jiro, yeah, yeah. Who at a moment says to to Zoe, who we've mentioned earlier, um, he says, "You want to know what the key to a happy life is? Um, no expectations, no preferences. If you prefer one outcome over another in life, you will likely be disappointed. I prefer nothing, and I'm all, and I'm always surprised." Mm. And when reading that, I, I had two reactions, which was that sounds incredibly wise and that sounds completely unrealistic. Yes. And, and I recognise that's not really a question, but I was just going to, I suppose, I'd like to know how you see the, this philosophy impacting on the, impacting or not, I guess, on the lives of uh, of your characters. Well, it's, Jiro is, it, I'm not, I don't think it's a spoiler, but Jiro is someone who, Zoe decides to become a sugar baby mm. and she goes on a date with this Japanese businessman, Jiro. And I think, I, I find expectations very important as a mm. writer because the great joy of my life is trying to work out how to upend right. expectations yeah. and thwart them or in a way that is hopefully, you know, delightful or yeah. disturbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that exact scene is an example of that. You know, what would you expect from a date between a 19-year-old and an older businessman mm-hmm. who is her sugar daddy? Um, maybe something slightly lecherous, mm-hmm. lesbious, you know? Like, And what ends up happening is they have this incredibly soulful sort of spiritual discussion in which Jiro is really sensitive mm-hmm. and, and imparts, you know, I think a lot of wisdom onto Zoe and is very curious and interested in her life and, and in her, you know, She's at the beginning of so much. Yeah, He's very yeah, respectful yeah. of that in her. So um, I know it's I, expectations are so important to me because I'm thinking all the time, like, what would you expect from this? What mm. can I do that's almost the opposite of that or different to that? Because for me, that's what creates dynamic scene. But... I think he's right. And I think Zoe even says the next thing. She's like, are you Buddhist or something? Because <laughs> she was just, and he was like, no. Yeah, like, yeah. But she's sort of incredulous. Like, because she says, what, what, surely if you had the choice between me kissing you or punching you, you would choose me kissing you. And he says, well, what if you kiss me and give me a cold sore? And what yeah. if you punch me and give me a new perspective on pain? And so it's just someone who comes in and, and you know, I, I, it's always interesting that happens often in my own life where I meet someone and they just shift the perspective mm-hmm. on something in a way I couldn't expect. And it's fun to have a character like Jiro, who is, you know, a very a true side character in some ways, but yeah. I think a very like potent character because mm-hmm. he comes in and he completely sort of changes Zoe's life. Miraculously, I have a new job. It's a freelance gig at an ad agency as a copywriter. My contract is for three months with the option to extend. They call this temp to perm. 
I love this phrase. Not only is it palindrome adjacent, it is extremely useful. All situations in life fall into one of these two categories. For example, the fact you are 37 years old and currently live with your mother in New Jersey, I remind myself, is temp. But the shape of your chin is sadly perm. Until recently, I was living in LA, working in the writer's room of a show about a clairvoyant cat. But due to creative differences, I made my departure. In fact, I was departed. The exact words they used were invited to leave. Not even the cat saw it coming. To hell with it, I'm relieved to leave LA, that sinkhole of creative ambition masquerading as an industry town. At least in Fairlawn, New Jersey, the first question posed isn't always TV or film, like getting asked still or sparkling at a restaurant. I'm being shown around the office by Jackie, the creative director's assistant. She's in her 50s with a poof of blonde hair and large blue eyes, lined disconcertingly in more blue. Jackie is like a poodle in that her fluffy exterior belies a keen and cunning intelligence. No, she says when she sees where I'm sitting, nuh-uh, we're not keeping you here. She leans over the desk and taps numbers into her phone with practiced efficiency. Raul, hi hon, it's Jackie. I'm gonna need you to help me move a new hire. We have her at the wrong desk. Yep, see you in a few, thanks gorgeous. She hangs up and turns to me. Is there something wrong with this desk, I ask? You're our only female writer, she says, and an actual adult. You're not sitting in the boondocks with the intern. The only object on my desk when I arrive is a mug that says, always do what you love. It goes straight into a drawer. My mother is picking fresh mint from the garden for tea when I get home. Her mugs have different bird species painted onto them. Her favorite is the goldfinch. She gives me the red cardinal. She only gives the blackbird to people she doesn't like. We kill an evening watching Sing Your Heart Out, a singing competition that seems to demand that the singers have endured a life hardship, ranging from the very bad, a dead parent or leukemia, to the kind of sad, a dead grandparent or hoarding, to the really stretching it, a dead pet or mono. The contestants take turns tearfully recounting their stories in front of a wall advertising an energy drink. What would you sing? asks my mother. I don't know, I say. Something about being a woman? You? Oh, some sexy pop song, she says. Really give him a show. My mother's living room has two sofas, the eating couch and the visitor's couch. An essay I wrote about nature in the fifth grade hangs on the wall. She said she knew I was a sensitive child when she read the first line. The park is a place of exquisite beauty and extreme danger. There's another character um, that I'd like to speak about. And again, again, avoiding spoilers, but it's Eleanor. And, oh, yeah. And one of the reasons, just from a kind of, again, a, a, sort of a, a writing perspective that Eleanor is interesting is that she uh, is the only person, the only character in the novel who's expressed in the first person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, I, as, as I was reading, it gave me a real jolt uh, as a reader to suddenly be in Eleanor's thoughts and to suddenly be, uh, yeah, to, to be with her. And she's, you know, a little bit, exterior to this group mm-hmm. you know she's not not so much part of the web of of sort of friends and associates as as all of the others so could you just talk a little bit about the decision to you know as you said you you play with different sort of closeness of third person perspective with the other with other positions but it's always very firmly third person what was it about Eleanor and her role in the story or her character that made you want to write 
in her voice. When I talk, you know, Eleanor has become the kind of like secret star of the novel. Uh-huh. She's a real like, she's a real fan favorite. I have to say, my, my favorite character. Oh, really? Okay, great. That's cool. I I also love Eleanor, and I loved writing her sections. And retrospectively, I always have like a really good reason for why I wrote her in first person, which is that I don't think it ruins anything to say that within the novel, she she's within the archetype of the other woman. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of role that she would play. And I think since, you know, and I would expect that any reader would come, we're very invested in Cleo and Frank at that yeah. point. So there's going to be a lot of pushback against the introduction of a third person mm-hmm. into the relationship. Um, so I wanted to do my best to, again, upend that or question right. that by having us be really close to her. You know, we can't judge her because yeah. we are her. We're first person with her. And it's a kind of, it's a it's a forced empathy, first yeah. person. Right. And um so that, in some ways, that was one of the reasons. But actually, the true reason when I was writing the book is that I'd been working on it for years. And <laughs> I wanted to give give my hand at first yeah. person. And I clearly never thought I was going to write another novel because I was just like, anything I ever want to do, I have to do it in this book. Tell me about so it. <laughs> I thought I just wanted to try it, you know, yeah, and I yeah. wanted to write first person fragment. I really wanted to try writing funny. Mm-hmm. I felt in my own life, when I tell stories, I often try to make them funny. But the novel... It is funny, I think, at mm. times, but it doesn't quite have that really punchline-y humour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that first-person fragment is very bouncy, you know? Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it is like a punchline. So it was really fun to write. And I had, you know, I had all these notes from all my years of being a copywriter, mm. things I had written down that I'd found funny. And I, it was like a magpie creating a nest of just shiny things. And I yeah, gave yeah. them all to Eleanor. And, um, and you know, she lives in New Jersey with her mother. She's a little, she's in her 30s. She's actually much closer to Frank's age. Mm. Than Cleo's, she's not on the surface uh, the glamorous the mm. way the other characters yeah, are. Yeah. She's not as shiny, you know. But she is for me like she is shiny because yeah, she yeah, is yeah. just. I, I hope a delight to read, and she's a very funny relationship with her mother. Yes, she's a, <laughs> yes. she's also grieving her uh-huh. father, and so. And I was really interested in how we use humor to hide sadness Mm -hmm. and this book is all about balance between dark and light gravity Mm. and levity you know freedom and the feeling of being you know very unfree inside of ourselves and she's part of that balance you know there's this kind of glimmering city and then there's her in new jersey and it's this other side of the river and um and also she is she's this kind of perfect mixture for me of just like of real sadness mm-hmm. and and real joy, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and she's both all the time. Yeah, I think um, a couple of things. I think firstly concerning the like the reasons for doing something. You mentioned the unconscious a few times, and I yeah. think it's definitely something which you know you say writers don't really always know what they're doing at the time and the so the sort of the the post factum reasons, mm-hmm. uh, even if you didn't think that at the time, are as legitimate about as the reasons for doing it which is just it as you said you wanted a you wanted a break you wanted a change yeah. but in fact you know i think the 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 kind of the weird alchemy of composition uh means that yeah your your brain works in very strange ways and takes you in certain directions which you only understand several months or several years um later but i thought also as a reader concerning the first person perspective um what it did for me as well was in some way, its effect sort of spread out onto the onto the other characters. So there, were, I think, by certain points, I was getting sort of like quite annoyed with Cleo and Frank and all them. the people. Are, and, and like, and this is interesting to say. Like, I, I was getting annoyed with them as people, while not getting annoyed with the book, which I think is something which is an yeah. interesting effect. You know, they can be a, very frustrating. And a testament to uh, a testament to your writing as well. But then suddenly, when you're confronted 
with this first person perspective, I think it, it sort of spreads out. It allows you to suddenly realise that there's all these other first person perspectives which are going on and are bubbling sort of under the surface that you don't, that you've been sort of denied access to until this point. And so I felt that it had a kind of a softening effect on my opinions of the of the some of the the actions and uh, <laughs> and sort of reactions of the of the other characters. I'm glad to hear that because I also think you know there's there's a self awareness to mm. Eleanor that is lacking in a lot of the other characters, and I think she brings an element of self awareness to the book. Yeah. So because I think after a while, you know, you're reading these characters and. So many of their problems are of their own making, mm. which, you know, I have, you know, is, is common and I have compassion for, but ultimately, you know, can be extremely frustrating <laughs> when you're like, you truly sort of have everything. Life could be really easy, uh-huh. but you haven't gone to therapy and therefore <laughs> you are making your life extremely hard. That's a lesson in the book. Go to therapy. <laughs> it kind of, I mean, spoiler, it kind of is. <laughs> but, um, whereas Eleanor, you know, she sees these characters so clearly and, you know, she, she often comments on them. Mm. And it also lets the reader know, I think that me as the writer is aware you know right. like okay. I also yeah, yeah, yeah. see because Eleanor you know I've written Cleo Frank but I've also written Eleanor you yeah, know and so yeah, it's yeah. like whoever can write all of those people obviously knows <laughs> you know that, <laughs> that I'm not you know obtuse to the fact that someone like Cleo can be grating in some ways you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. she comes like dangerously close I think to like a manic pixie mm-hmm. dream girl and I hope like pulls back from that Oh becoming. yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't. But she—it's yeah. a trope that she is playing. You know, that's right. part of the allure of her. That's mm-hmm. part of what Frank sees in her early on. Um, so when we see Eleanor react to Cleo, it's really mm-hmm. interesting to yeah, get yeah, yeah, a perspective yeah. that isn't in this very insular bubble mm-hmm. of kind of like cool New Yorkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, where I like to finish because we are almost out of time is with like I've got a sense while reading the book and definitely in a sense while talking to you that you you know these characters like these these characters are very real to you <laughs> and and then oh, that's yeah. why i think they become very real to us as readers um have they continued to live for you after the book like do you uh do you have a sense that sort of like you know how how their lives have gone on what they're doing now even perhaps if you'll ever revisit some of them in the future or is it as i've had writers tell me in the past like h- however living they are on the page once the final full stop is there, that's it, they're done. They are still alive to me. I'm so glad they feel alive to you because a character's kind of everything for me. Like that's all, that's all a novel is for me. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not that interested in anything other than characters. So sometimes to the detriment of the book. But just to um, be clear, there is definitely plot. There's it? definitely plot in this book. <laughs> it took a while to get there, but there's definitely plot. Um, but no, I mean, it's funny. I was having dinner in Paris the other day and someone walked into the restaurant and I was like, Zoe. And she just looked exactly <laughs> like I imagined Zoe looking. And it, that makes me so happy whenever I see that. And um, I, I get asked a lot if I'm going to write a sequel for this book because the ending is also a beginning. You sure, know, there's yeah. no, there's nothing permanent about the end. Mm-hmm. You know, that no one dies. You know, like everyone's... and, and <laughs> I don't think that's like a will they, won't they in the novel. I don't think anyone's like, who will die in this book? <laughs> um, and there, and many of them are just beginning these like whole new chapters in their lives. So there's a real, I think it's very hopeful for that reason. I I wasn't interested in writing a sequel. My new novel is with a completely new set of characters uh-huh. that just like absolutely took me captive, and I had no choice but to follow them into their lives. Um, but I am working on the TV show for this book, mm. which I think will be a re- it's very visual. This novel and it's yeah, very yeah. you know rich in terms of its setting, and it has this ensemble cast you know that's built in. 
So for me, it, that would be a really natural way of continuing to tell that story. Because I have a lot of thoughts on what happens to someone like Quentin, who um, is, of all the characters, I think, left mm. in maybe sometimes the most worrying sure. place yeah, yeah. in some ways. And Zoe's only 19. She's mm. got a, they've got a lot of life yeah, le- yeah, yeah. Yet left to live. They've got a lot of love to... I'm just like a share. I'm like, do you believe in love after love? I'm like, is this? I'm like, am I? But I do believe in love after love. So. Um. Which I think is a perfect place. <laughs> a, bit, a bit of share to finish um, to finish the conversation. Uh, Cleopatra and Frankenstein is. I was going to say is of course available from Shakespeare and Company. We have this ongoing joke that every time Coco visits us, we've actually sold out of the book. But uh, generally, it's available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from the uh, from our online shop, or of course, from your local independent bookstore, wherever you are based. Uh, Coco, it's been such fun. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.